There are many strange happenings in the wild country of British Columbia, and none more so than the singular event of coming into contact with a Sasquatch. In the indigenous tongue of a native people, the males are known as the Bukwas, and the females are named Sanakwa. The people who seek them out are known as Sasquatch researchers, and the following reports are from the files of one such man, Canada's preeminent Sasquatch researcher and seeker of the truth, Thomas Steenberg. claim to have seen it. I've talked to people who have found their tracks. I've seen footprints on many occasions myself, alleged footprints, and I tend to believe a good number of them are possibly authentic. I have interviewed hundreds of people, and in all that time, have I ever seen this creature myself? My answer to that is maybe. <laughs> And uh, in the summer of uh, 2005, on the west side of Harrison Lake, approximately going up a 20-mile bay area, west Harrison Lake, I was taking the property night watchman there back home. I saw a figure about a mile away on a cut line, a power cut line, disappearing from the trees on the right-hand side. If that was a man, no, I have not seen a Sasquatch. If that was a Sasquatch, then yes, I've seen it. But it's too far away to see any details, so that's why I don't say for sure that I've seen a Sasquatch. One thing you'll uh, know about me, uh, learn more about me, I have one philosophy in research, just one, and that is stick to the facts and never deviate from the facts. For me, that is what all researchers, who anyone wants to get involved in this kind of research, must keep to heart. Stick the facts, never deviate the facts, and keep a healthy dose of skepticism. Skepticism is the best quality a researcher into this phenomenon can have. Skepticism, a lot of people think that's just people who just don't want to see the facts in front of their eyes, not necessarily. Skepticism is a great quality because if you're, if you're not a skeptic, and I don't mean a skeptic is a closed mind. When you have a skeptical attitude towards reports of the Sasquatch, and you don't have uh, don't have that attitude, and you just accept everything on face value, then you're not really a researcher. In my opinion, you're an advocate. You know, and there's far too much of that going on. Uh, an advocate, uh, uh, like a religious leader trying to push a faith, than a researcher trying to solve a mystery. It's the best way to describe it. And we've got all kinds of stuff like that now. I mean, all you have to do, and I'm sure all you have, is look on the internet, especially south of the border, and Bigfoot is everywhere. Yeah, I saw Bigfoot. He picked the car up and he threw it in the river. <laughs> yeah, Bigfoot. He lives in my backyard. I give him garlic out the back door. How long has this been going on? Ten years. Have you taken any pictures? No. That I did photograph the stick it dropped. That kind of thing. I mean, there's something wrong with the story. I mean, 
and, and, and it's just overwhelming. I like to say, and I get getting in trouble for this, I like to say Sasquatch and research today more resemblance an asylum that's been taken over by the inmates than anything else. And all you have to do is spend a couple of days on the internet, a couple of days on YouTube, or listen to Coast to Coast Radio for a month to know what I'm talking about. I mean, it is just full of absolute mind-boggling nonsense. But on a lighter side, there are still ongoing cases of people in everyday lives coming across things and seeing things that absolutely have been spelled out. People who see the unbelievable for a few moments. They tell one or two friends about it. They're immediately told the crazy, so they decide to shut up about it. And this ongoing phenomenon has been continuous here in the west coast of British Columbia since long before the Europeans first came. Our First Nation people all have different stories and legends and mythology an oral history concerning creatures of the Sasquatch. As a matter of fact, the name Sasquatch itself, well, I'll talk a little bit more about that when I get into the presentation. But that's just one, one name. There was all kinds of them, all put up, up and down the coast. You know, the Skookum, the Oma, the Bookwas, the Sonicwa. I mean, that's just, just a few. The name Sasquatch itself was actually a Caucasian word because of uh, a man named J.W. Burns, who heard the stories from his friends on the Chehaeus Reserve, just on near Harrison Mills here, he mispronounced the word and he spelled it wrong. And that story came out in 1929 in McLean's Magazine in the dark of Sasquatch. It goes way, way back. It goes back generations upon generations, hundreds of hundreds of years. It was well known among First Nations or Native Americans, as they're called south of the border long before the Europeans ever stepped foot in this part of the North American continent. They all had different beliefs about it. They all had different opinions on what the creature was capable of. They all had different beliefs of where they came from, what their relationship to them was. But they were all basically talking about the same thing. Sonica, book this fact itself was, uh, was carved in the early 1930s on the Shehaeus Reserve. It was just recently repatriated, and they use it now in their ceremonies. It was in the Vancouver Museum for years, and it's just been returned. And it's, a, it's just known as the Sasquatl based mask. Sasquatl was the kind of a word, or Sasquatl, or Sasquatl. That's how the Shehaeus people used to pronounce the word before a man named J.W. Burns wrote that article in McLean's magazine and the name Sasquatch just stuck. It's been known as Sasquatch ever since. But all First Nation uh, culture all up and down the West Coast, this is a totem on the, that's on display in the museum in Victoria. That is the, the Sunaquat, or the wild woman of the woods. If you ever see a totem of the Sunaquat, she always has whistling, pierced, Lips. It's also known as the cannibal one, which was kind of used as a boogeyman by First Nation culture. She was kind of used as a boogeyman to keep kids in line. Don't go into certain areas in the woods. Don't go there, that there, or the Sunaqua will get. 
She will pick you up, she will take you away, and she will eat you. So basically, in, uh, in many cultural aspects in First Nation <coughs> history, the Sasquatch was the male. That people were told to avoid and dread it was the female. They were nasty. They would take you, take you away, and they would feed on you. Things like that. That was kind of the way the oral history went. And of course, we have the male, the Bukwas, this koala mask from uh, uh, Queen Charlotte Islands. Uh, I believe they're no longer called this Queen Charlotte Islands, are they? What's the name now? Hyde and Y. Everything changes. Yeah. And this is the koala mask from Hyde and Y. And it's the mask of the uh, Bukwas, which is basically the male, and the Sunapas, the female of the creature that we now commonly refer to as Sasquatch. And again, the Bookwatch was rather passive compared to the female. He wasn't supposed, he may have come in and steal something every now and then, or make off with a maiden every now and then, or something like that. But he didn't eat people. Female did. Sonicwad did. Uh, I guess he was a vegetarian. <laughs> but in uh, folklore and Mythology and First Nations oral history. If you ever look back, you see the Sonopah, they're talking about the female, the Bookwas are talking about the male. And that is now we both just use the term Sasquatch. And of course, there were many other names, of course, too, all up and down the West Coast. Northern California, the Alma, the Skookum in Oregon, you know, the Mountain Devil in, uh, in uh, Washington. That's been credited to, uh, credited to First Nation sources, too, but I don't quite really go along with that. I think that was an early settlers because I don't believe the First Nations had any concept of the devil until the Europeans came here. I don't know. So why would they use the term Mountain Devil? I have no idea. But that's how the story goes. Now, some of we all have what we call the classic tales. And you've all heard the classic stories. The Albert Austin capture, the Eight Canyon attack, uh, the Ruby Creek incident, those, those kind of stories. Of course, the Paris of Dumont film would be classic one now, in my opinion. Yeah. But this is one of the local ones here. It's known as the Ruby Creek incident. Ruby Creek, the Chapman property at, uh, on Ruby Creek, which is just, oh, 40 minutes from here along Highway 7 and between Agassiz and Hope, if you know where Ruby Creek is. In 1941, when this incident occurred, the Lockheed Highway didn't exist. It wasn't there. All it was was a little dirt road that were wrinkled around in wide circles all through the, all the, the First Nation Reserve there. And the railway was there. The railway tracks were there. They existed. That's how most people got there, walking along the railway tracks or going down the river by boat. And Mrs. Jenny Chapman was living, and her family, and Mr. George Chapman, were living in this house on this piece of property right on the banks of the Fraser River in 1941. Now, the story goes that Mrs. Jenny Chapman was washing dishes when one of her three children walked in and said, Mommy, Mommy, there's a strange cow coming out of the trees. Mrs. Chapman didn't know what she was talking about, so she walked out of the house. And she could see this thing in, just inside the tree line moving around, and it came out into the clearing because it was like a, a small acreage clearing here between the tree line and the house and the river, especially in 41. 
Well, she didn't know what to make of this thing, but all she knew is that there's no driveway, it was a cap. That's the property as it was photographed, as it looked with John Green photographed it in 1957, supposed to 15 years after the incident occurred, which was 1941. Now, Mrs. Chapman came out of the house and she saw this thing walking towards the house and she basically described it as an eight foot, hair covered, man-like thing that had rather light brown colored hair. She described it as a teak color. I guess that would be close to that piece of wood going along, uh, trimming going along the wall here, close to that color. She described it as a teak color, a tea color. And the skin was jet black. And the creature was approaching the, approaching the house. So she gathered up the kids, ran into the house, ran out the back door of the house. She covered the kids with a blanket, went down to the riverbank, and scooted off along the cemetery into the main reserve, back up into the railway tracks, and headed high up for the, for, for the, the main building and community of Ruby Creek. Well, a, gu a guy named uh, Tiffany was uh, working a rail line with two of other men. And all he remembers is this woman running down the railroad tracks with a kid screaming, the Sasquatch is after me. So Mr. Tiffany was wondering what the heck she was talking about, and he talked to her. And she had calmed her down a little bit. When she went on her way, they had an old-fashioned hand pump cart that was still in use in 1941. Remember, this is 41. Canada was at war. The United States was still three, oh, three months away from war before the attack of Pearl Harbor. So he... He and his two buddies, and his two colleagues, pumped down to the front of the, the part of the track closest to the property. They went and investigated. And what they found, they didn't see any sign of the creature. But what they did find was the tracks coming across the garden through what was a potato patch, circling the house, looked like it may have gone into the house, and circled the house again, and came out to where there was a lean-to, which was, doesn't exist in this picture was taken, but used to lean against that side of the house, which had several barrels of salted salmon in it. Now, one of these barrels of salted salmon it had the lid torn off, and they, they assumed that whatever it was sampled the fish, didn't like what it tasted, and it dumped the contents out all over the place. And then the track sort of went off down to the riverside, where they assumed it was probably trying to wash the salted salmon taste out of its mouth. And then the tracks made a beeline straight back across this property, straight through to the trees, and just through those trees a little ways is the railroad CPR line that goes right through that area. And, it was, and that was in use today. Now, today, Highway 7, the lot of highway is in behind these trees, and the tracks are in between the highway and this property, but the, the road wasn't there in 41 when this happened. And that's where the tracks went. Mr. Kipling said the tracks just crossed a four-foot fence that went along the railway line and looked like it just stepped over that fence and went off into the trees. Now, at this time, when they were off looking at into the trees, Mr. George Chapman returned home, and he was a little upset to find his family gone. And the door often popped hanging on the hinge, hair stuck to it, and all these big footprints around it. And some men's movements too, so he didn't know what was going on. The first thing he, he did was head into town, the main river creek uh, reserve, and he found his wife and children all huddled in, in the main building of the, the reserve, and she told him what had happened. Well, the family went back to the house. Now, if you read some of the older books on this subject, 
like Ivan T. Sanderson books and John Green's books, you get the impression that it tells you that they abandoned the house after that. They moved away and never came back. That's true, but they didn't do it immediately. They, they, hung, they, they stayed in the house for a week. And whatever it was, they think, kept coming back, but they never saw it again. Just out, like every night around 3 or 2 in the morning, the, the dogs would go crazy, and they would hear this high-piercing screaming-like noise from outside, but they never dared to look out to see what it was. And after a week of that, they had had enough, they left the house. But the house wasn't really abandoned after that either. Other relatives continued to live there, and, but none of them reported anything strange. What really caused the house to be abandoned was the last great flood of the Fraser River in 1958, when this whole piece of property here was about four and a half or five feet underwater. Because it's right on, on the riverbank, and the last big flood of the Fraser River had completely turned this area into a lake. I mean, it was a mess. Half the graves in the cemetery came up and the bodies were washed down the river with the coffins and it was, it was the last big flood of Fraser. And that's what really caused it. it was water damage from that flood that caused this house to eventually be abandoned and rock away. Not the Sasquatch incident of 1941 as many of the older books tell But it's, 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 it's one of our classic tales and it has remained so. See, that's another picture taken at the time of the late 1950s. That's a photograph taken by Rennie Day in the property. You can see how dilapidated and how overgrown it got just 15 years after it happened. And of course, today, I took that photograph in 2009. Most of the same two trees. And we know they're the same two trees because they're both Siamese twin trees. That's one trunk with two stems they're rare, let alone get two together. They were there in 57, and they're still there today. So we can tell where the house, basically tell where the house was when it was there on the property today. The property is now owned by a charming couple named Schneider. And uh, that's Dave Schneider right there. Every now and then when a group of people come up here and they want to take a look at some of the old classic sites, all I have to do is phone them up and say, it's okay if I show these people the property, they usually let us go in. Unless you're a film crew or something like that, then you get involved in, you know, uh, uh, politics of the particular First Nation and money and all that kind of stuff. Because it is on reserved land. It's part of the reserve. So. That's the way it looks. Now, what we did was we superimposed John Green's photograph from 1957 on a photograph taken by Barry Blunt in 2010. And it kind of shows you where the house would be if it was still there today. That's where it was. I mean, we, we lined up the mountains in the background. Even the snow patterns from 57 to 2010 hadn't changed that much, so it's quite easy to do. So if the house was still there, that's where it would have been. As a matter of fact, those two trees have grown so much, they're almost growing over. And you can always tell the tree because George Chapman always told the story of how he pushed a, a, a shovel into the V of one of the Siamese twin trees and just left it there. The shovel overgrew got overgrown and engulfed by the tree, and it's now 13 feet off the ground. <laughs> and it's still sticking out. I saw it, it's still there. And uh, uh, some things never change, you know. It just goes on. You can always find these things. It's probably me. Okay, dear listener, that about wraps it up for now. My name is Jerry Matthews. You can reach me at yellowcoyote at talus.net. 
thank you for your interest. And until the next time, keep searching. <laughs>